0: What's up, seafarers? Welcome to the Jesus of Movies podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow passenger, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what that might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today, we're talking about Titanic, and Graham, my one question for you is, if I
1: jump, will you jump? I'm going to be honest. No. Uh, It is jumping into icy waters of the Titanic, which according to Jack Dawson, uh, are only a couple degrees above freezing. Atlantic, not Titanic. Uh, But yeah, anyway, Titanic. What an epic film we're diving into today, Kev.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like this movie is more about spectacle or story? Kind of a a great debate about this movie. Ooh, interesting.
1: I would... I would lean towards spectacle because Titanic is such an important, or I guess, well-known event in Western human history. Uh, I would kind of put it in, people will get mad at me for this, I would kind of put it in the same category of uh, Pearl Harbor, the movie. I don't know if you've seen that one with uh, Ben Affleck, but taking a historical event and kind of making it historical fiction through inserting this love story that makes it more compelling. But... Yeah, Titanic, an absolute behemoth of a movie, and at one point was the highest grossing film of all time.
0: Yeah, James Cameron has a knack for producing those kinds of movies. Uh, I think for me, it's like you come for the spectacle, but you stay for the story. Mm. Like I think the the story lingers on in my mind, but I'm more curious as to what you think about the movie, because Graham, you've never seen Titanic in your entire life until
1: this week. <laughs> I've never seen Titanic in my entire life. That is true. Um, and, I, and I hate to say it, Kev, and sorry to the listeners who might be offended, but... I think it is pretty overrated. Oh my, a dagger to my yeah. heart. I will say it's an incredible love story. I think the the cinematics are great, really well acted, the set is fantastic but it's three hours and eight minutes long. That is a long, long movie. And I feel like he probably could have cut it down at least an hour. I'm not sure I needed uh, old Rose in this film. Maybe I'm being a little bit too particular and hating on this great blockbuster, but I saw it once and I was relatively satisfied and I don't feel any pressure or desire to really go see it again. That's kind of where I'm at.
0: Well, yeah, that's fine. I
1: mean, there's great subjectivity in art, right? It's totally
0: okay for you to not like it and for me to have it as a top five favorite movie of all time. That's okay.
1: So for you, this is top five all time. Walk me through why why it ranks that high on your list.
0: Yeah, so this might not surprise our regular listeners, but for me, a big part of it is the music. So let's play a little bit of that now. I always win, Jack.
2: And lower away evenly, lads. One way or another. Watch that trim. Trim that boat. Easy. Even, lads.
3: Rose! You're so stupid!
2: Why'd you do that,
3: huh? You're so stupid, Rose!
2: Why did you do that, why? You jump high, jump right? Right. Oh God, I couldn't go.
0: Man, that just does something unbelievable for me. And what an amazing scene. What did you think th- were there any moments that's like what did you think of that moment where Rose jumps back on the Titanic?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great moment. Um especially their reunion scene when they're in the middle of the ship and he's like, "You're so stupid." And then he's kissing her like the holding both in one hand like I'm so upset at you, but also I'm so happy to be with you. Um I think there was a lot going on in that scene that was Fantastic for me, I would say it's probably the earlier scenes that get me with with Jack and Rose more so than the later ones. I think part of watching this movie uh, is challenging because of the oversaturation of Titanic in like our current culture. Like I honestly knew the "My Heart Will Go On" uh, song because of seeing so many sports highlights clipped to "My Heart Will Go On" over the past three years. I feel like that's become a pretty popular meme. Um, and even though I haven't seen Titanic all the way through the like Jack never let go uh, or promise me, you you'll never let go scene is, you know, such a cinematic uh, staple. So I think maybe if I had been able to go into this movie completely blind without having any concept for what's going to happen next, it might have hit a little bit different. Um, I think maybe it becomes a little bit more stale upon rewatch, which is kind of unfortunate. But I think where I currently stand how do you feel like the music played into all that for you the music is fantastic and i think that's something that is totally worth affirming about this film uh the scores are sweeping and large and dramatic and really beautiful and they peak at the right moments. so i don't know the scores that come to mind are when jack and rose uh, are at the front of the ship and there's the i'm flying scene i think that is fantastic i do think that my heart will go on is is a great song but honestly there are even some of the more nuanced uses of music in this film specifically when uh, jack and rose go to the party kind of on the back deck of the ship with all the third uh third class passengers like i loved the whole uh dancing scene there i think that was actually some of my favorite use of of music in the film
0: Graham and I watched Titanic together and when we did have that party below decks, I was watching you watch and you were smiling ear to ear when Jack was smiling ear to ear when they were doing the little circle twisty dance Mm -hmm, thing. mm -hmm. Is that not one of like the most pure joy moments like in any movie you've seen when they're just going around in circles like that. There's something cinematic about that circular camera movement.
1: A hundred percent. And what it actually reminded me of was the It's a Wonderful Life dance scene. If you remember that when they do the Charleston, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, definitely brought back some memories there. And that's that was one of my award winners in that film.
0: Well, let's get to award winners in this film because we've got a lot to get to. So kick it off with your Lazarus Award for the High Key Gospel Moment of Titanic.
1: My Lazarus Award goes to the scene when Jack and Rose first meet.
3: Don't do it. Stay back. Don't come any closer. Come on. Just give me your hand. I'll pull you back over. No! Stay where you are! I mean it! I'll let go! You're distracting me. Go away! I can't. I'm involved now. You let go, and I'm, I'm gonna have to jump in there after you. Don't be absurd. You'll be killed. I'm a good swimmer. The fall alone would kill you. It would hurt. I'm not saying it wouldn't. Tell you the truth, I'm a lot more concerned about that water being so cold. Which is why I'm not looking forward to jumping in there after you. Like I said, I don't have a choice. I guess I'm kind of hoping you'll come back over the rail and and get me off the hook here. You're crazy. That's what everybody says, but with all due respect, miss, I'm not the one hanging off the back of a ship here. Come on. Come on, give me your hand. You don't want to do this. Jack Dawson. What do we pick here? I have to get you to write that one down.
1: <laughs> and so the reason that this scene wins my Lazarus award is because I think it perfectly describes the dynamic between one, our sinful, ashamed selves, and two the person of Jesus. Uh, I think if we're being honest, we loathe the pain that this world offers and we'll do just about anything we can to escape it. Um, And so like Rose, who is trying to live up to the expectations of her mother, trying to uh, care for her family lineage and marrying Cal, um, we often feel constrained, unheard, unseen, and forced into a narrative that is not of our choosing. Oftentimes a narrative that the world or people in this world gives us. Uh, And yet the uncomfortable truth here is that Jesus sees us, and whether we like it or not, he is jumping ship for us. He is the ultimate example, uh, like Jack, of getting involved in the life of a broken person. Uh, And so when I watched this scene, I actually thought of an interaction between Jesus and Peter that we see in Matthew 16, uh, 21 through 23, and it says this. we uh, think Peter does this out of a genuine love for Jesus. Like, of course, he, Jesus is one of Peter's best friends. Like, of course, Peter doesn't want to let him die. Uh, but really, rather than doing this out of love, Peter does it out of a lack of understanding of his own sinfulness, a lack of understanding that uh, somebody needs to die for the brokenness that is within him. And so the thought of our Savior, our best friend dying, is so uncomfortable and painful. Uh, and the thought of us putting him in that place makes it all that more devastating. But like Jack's love for Rose, Jesus's love for us is uncomfortable. It's the highest form of involved, whether we like it or not. And that's why Jack's willingness uh, to go jump into these freezing waters after Rose with no regard for his own personal safety or well-being wins my Lazarus Award. Oh, I really like it. And I think there's some interesting theological
0: connections going on here too, right? Because Jack is the one who initiates this conversation, right? Like if he doesn't show up on the stern, Rose is in trouble. Yeah, And he's the one who's like, I'm already involved. Like I've decided I'm going to see this through to the finish line. To me that kind of has he who has begun a good work will carry it out to the completion like glorification vibes to it. Yep. This is a theme that we're going to see throughout this movie of if you jump I jump right. Like that that kind of agreement so to speak is going to intensify as the stakes intensify. And so I think that this is the beginning of that sort of plot line and, like, something that we're going to return to over and over. And I think it reminds me of how God returns to his covenant with his people over and over, even when he doesn't need to.
1: Yeah, I think one of the most compelling elements of this scene is that, uh, like Rose, I think we oftentimes uh, want to believe that our actions don't have direct consequences on others. Like, our actions exist in some sort of vacuum where they uh, only affect us and they don't affect the people around us. Um, And in this moment, like... Jack is basically telling her, like, if you take this action, it is going to have, you know, if you take a action it is going to have b direct impact on like my next decision of going in after you. And so I think there's kind of a parallel there in terms of us uh, choosing to sin and then seeing the direct consequence of Jesus going to the cross for that sin. Like Jesus is on that cross because of us, which is why it's so painful and devastating to look at it. And so I think like seeing that one to one, Parallel makes this scene pretty powerful for me. He's too involved now. (laughs) All right, Kev, take me to your Lazarus Award.
0: So, I actually think there are so many Lazarus Award nominees in this movie, which is Mm -hmm. a little bit unusual because when we think about high key gospel moments, at least I'm usually thinking about like high key dramatic moments, like usually at the end of an act or a sequence. Like, there's only so many even if something is really biblical, like dramatically the way it's visually musically cinema like the, like the way it's presented by the filmmakers, there's not always a ton of high key moments. And like, that's the reason they're high key, right? Is because mm-hmm. they're like set up by low key, like building tension. Anyways, all of this to s- is to say that there's a lot of Lazarus award nominees in this movie, because as you noted, it's a super long movie. But when I think about like the moment in this movie that really probably sticks with me, maybe more than any other for like truly gospel beauty and truth, I'm thinking about the iconic scene of Jack and Rose on the bow of Titanic in which Rose professes her love.
3: Hello, Jack. I changed my mind. They said you might be up here. Give me your hand. the railing. Keep your eyes closed, don't pee. I'm not.
0: This is my pulpit pick. So this is a stunning scene and I want to basically to give you an overview talk about three things. Freedom, beauty, and holiness. So the first is freedom. Jack invites Rose into a bigger and fuller world and this should be a little bit intuitive at this point because we see this in a lot of movies right like I think I've called this the a whole new world effect before. I think about Aladdin where like he and Jasmine are going on this magical carpet ride and they're flying and it's like, wow, I'm being introduced into this whole new experience that I've never had before. That's textbook what's going on between Jack and Rose here, right? And whether it's Aladdin or Avatar or La La Land or How to Train Your Dragon or even Prisoner of Azkaban, right? We talked about this with Harry, like when he sort of extends his arms laterally and he's like, he's flying over that pond on Buckbeak. Like we we really like connect flying and freedom, I think, visually and intellectually right like that seems to be like a time-tested metaphor yeah so the verses i'm going with here are psalm 16 11 because first the reason this moment is so special for rose is because she's in jack's presence like now being on his team this is psalm 16:11. you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore and that's what we see in this moment jack is making known to her a new path of life in his presence she experiences fullness of joy and literally by his side pleasures forevermore but let's talk about this flying parallel this is maybe the best flying verse in the bible i don't know if you can come up with a better one i've got isaiah 40 31 here but they who wait for the lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint. this is an iconic moment of flying and so that verse kind of came to mind But freedom is just the beginning of this moment because when I think about what is at the heart of it, it's also beauty, right? This is like a stunning moment. We've got the sunset palette as uh, we get deeper into dusk, like the colors get more vivid and brilliant. And uh, it's almost hard to describe. This is where a podcast can't do a movie justice. So I'm just going to read scripture to talk about how all beauty is God's beauty. There is not one thing beautiful that is beautiful outside of God's willing it or creation, right? If He really made everything, and He even forms the desires of our hearts, then God is the reason we find anything beautiful. We, he's the reason we find anything noble or true or pure or good. And we get this language in Philippians four. Check these words out from Paul. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We've got this short one from Psalm 50, verse two. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Ecclesiastes 3, 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's interesting language there. The author of Ecclesiastes kind of tying beauty and eternity together. Is there not something like eternal and timeless about this moment with Jack and Rose? Lastly, Psalm 27, four. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist wants to gaze upon God's beauty forever in the presence of his temple. And that leads us into our last point, which is holiness. Holiness means to be set apart, right? Like special, unique, different. This moment is a sacred one, not just for Jack and Rose, but for the history of filmmaking. Like when we watch this, at least for me, I'm feeling like I'm on like hallowed ground. Like I know that this is so iconic. I know the history behind it. I know how referential it has become. In ancient Israel, we have like the courtyard. It's like marked by like a fence or like tents. It's really wide. Only certain people are allowed to go in for very specific reasons. And then within the courtyard, we have the holy place. And then within that holy place temple, we have the holy of holies, which only the ordained priest under extremely specific set of circumstances were able to enter. They would be literally killed and people were killed for not, you know, adhering to uh, God's instruction correctly. And so think of it like a heat grid, like yellow to orange to red, like God's presence is more or less intense. His holiness, like you can't be around it. Like we think about the burning bush, like God asks Moses to take his sandals off, right? Because it's holy ground. And so with that in mind, I want to talk about the anointing oil and incense because there's a lot of language of holiness here. And I know this might sound boring, but I think once we start to read it, you'll start to see the parallels The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices, of liquid myrrh 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromic cane, and 500 of cassia according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With that you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron as his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. And so we see really intense language here about like this oil is set apart. Like it is a specific use, and you are not to just pour it on you. like it is different. And what's so interesting is that in this time of ancient Israel, when we're talking about the anointing oil and the incense and in the tabernacle, there was extreme ritual purity that was required for the israelites to have any kind of communion with god and this is why leviticus is actually one of my favorite books of the bible because it's just these intense rigid laws about what it takes to be in god's presence It's, it's almost overwhelming to read it's like how can anybody maintain purity around god you touched a dead goat and now you're impure. And if you touch someone else, now they're impure. It's like a disease where like the negativity spreads from one to the other to the other. And you have to like offer these sacrifices to become pure again, but then it's only a matter of time because before you come impure, which is different from being morally pure and impure. But anyways, ritually pure and impure. it just the impurity spreads, and purity only happens in a one-time transaction. But what we see with Jesus is the opposite. Actually, like when Jesus comes to earth, like he begins bringing his kingdom here, and his holiness actually flows out from him. And we have this great vision of this in Isaiah 6, talk about like a burning coal. So listen to these interesting verses here from the prophet Isaiah. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I have a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And here's where it gets interesting. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And so, this is 700 years before Jesus will come, but Jesus is the true and greater burning coal that's going to spread his goodness and life out from him. So, you just have to really imagine this idea of Jesus like bringing the kingdom to earth would have been so foreign to Jews who had the complete reverse understanding in place of like impurity spreads. Now, it's like what? Goodness and life and salvation spreads out of this Jesus guy? Like, we can actually carry the gospel to other people and other people. Be- come say it's like it's just a total undoing and so I know this is a lot to comprehend so I'm, I am I want to like pivot and ground this in something that maybe feels a little more relatable what if you don't feel worthy like what if you feel unworthy of all of this or, or you just don't like it and to this I turn to R.C. Sproul's book The Holiness of God and I want to read a couple excerpts here because I think maybe this is how I feel about this stuff sometimes Holiness provokes hatred. The greater the holiness, the greater the human hostility towards it. It seems insane. No man was ever more loving than Jesus Christ, yet even his love made people angry. His love was a perfect love, a transcendent and holy love, but his very love brought trauma to people. This kind of love is so majestic that we can't stand it. Right? So there's kind of this polarizing effect that Jesus' love have. Here's a second one. We tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There's a sense in which we're at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it while at the same time we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy while part of us despises it. We can't live with it and we can't live without it. Lastly, it has been said that nothing dispels a lie faster than the truth. Nothing exposes the counterfeit faster than the genuine. And so maybe... You identify with some of those quotes from R.C. Sproul there about what it means to sort of hate the holiness or, or feel unworthy or run away from the holiness or feel like it just this isn't how life works. And maybe to go back to your Simon Peter reference from before, this is how he feels after having betrayed Jesus when it matters the most. But what do we see Jesus do? Simon, do you love me? Simon Peter, do you love me? Simon Peter, do you love me? Three times, echoing back to Peter denying Jesus three times. And it's just this beautiful moment of repetition. Jesus is kind of saying like, hey, do you know that I love you? Hey, I love you. Hey, I love you. And I think this is one thing I really appreciate about my pastor. He incorporates repetition in his preaching because I think it just, it drives home. It's kind of that irresistible grace idea of like Jesus just like wearing down the walls of our heart with each successive blow. I think that's kind of what Jesus does with Peter here. Like, hey, I love you. No, 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 you don't get it. Hey, I love you. You still don't get it. Hey, I love you. And this is really like this holiness that we feel unworthy of. We can actually know that just like Peter, Jesus is longing for us to be a part of it.
1: Wow. Awesome. Uh, a lot to digest there, but I think really, really good stuff. Um, and one of the things that I think I'm going to touch on here is, as we go into our words a little bit later is that holiness, which is previously so inaccessible, right? The holy holiness that of God that exists only in the Holy of Holies, like Jesus flips the kingdom on its head to the point where Paul claims in Colossians that like the mystery of Christ is that like Christ is in us uh, and no longer like do we have to go somewhere to go and attain that holiness, like that holiness comes to us in the person of Jesus through the Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, that's a great, like I definitely should have mentioned that. I'm glad you did because like the the doctrine here is like union with Christ. Like how can we be holy? Well, we're only holy if we're in Christ, right? Like 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Like it's because we're in Christ that we too can be deemed holy and be admitted into the kingdom of God.
1: Yeah, that's money. I love it.
0: But I don't know, like it's such a visual moment. I would really encourage people to watch it because it's just like awe inspiring. Like there, there is something you, I think I, I guess I'm curious to your thoughts. Like if you don't like the movie, does that moment feel sacred or is it like uh, this is cheesy?
1: No, I think it is a really powerful moment. Uh, I remember reading a little bit of background on it that they waited two weeks for that specific sunset in order to uh, film that scene. And so, uh, yeah, I think there is something like that is so liberating and free about you know, putting your hands up. I mean, there's there's no denying it's cultural influence. And, you know, I think I've probably tried to replicate that photo a couple times without ever even seeing the movie, you know?
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's like, even if you haven't seen Titanic, you probably know that moment. So take it to your Mary Magdalene Award for a low-key
1: gospel moment in Titanic. My Mary Magdalene Award goes to Jack's humble beginnings quote.
3: Jack, you are a potter. So you bet everything we have. When you got nothing, you got nothing to lose.
1: So this is actually the first line that we hear Jack utter in the entire film. Uh, And it's as he wins a poker game, which gives him a ticket to get on the Titanic uh, and he rushes aboard, which starts this entire adventure. I want to focus on this whole idea of having nothing left to lose. Uh, It feels like the nothing left to lose idea has become a motif in our culture in all sorts of ways. Uh, I see it in sports. I see it in professional achievement, taking a risk of any kind. Um, And we actually, as a culture have very different opinions about these kinds of people. Uh, Here's a quote from James. James Baldwin, who's a famous writer in the 20th century who wrote on uh, Western class, uh, culture, race in the United States, he said, quote, the most dangerous creation of any society is the man who has nothing to lose. So on one end, like these are the kind of people, these Jack like people uh, are really scary uh, because they're willing to do absolutely everything they can to achieve uh, a certain goal. But we also love cheering for these kinds of people uh, or these kinds of teams that embody this nothing to lose mentality. The NCAA tournament, March Madness. Uh, We uh, on Easter weekend got to watch the UCLA Gonzaga game. And one of the things I remember the commentator saying during this game as UCLA was hitting all these pull up mid range shots is like, they're just fearless right now. They're an 11 seed who's made it all the way to the final four, uh, and they have nothing left to lose. And so, why not take difficult shots? Like, they're not going to clench up in fear because they have nothing left to lose. Like, they've already made it so much further in the tournament uh, that anybody has ever made it. They have the freedom to take difficult shots. And so, in Titanic, Jack's nothing to lose mentality proves to be incredibly liberating, especially in context with Rose's everything to lose standing in society. So, Jack's poor, orphaned, and has no place to call home. He can live his life free of expectations from others. Uh, And yet, Rose is not. She's got, uh, comes from a wealthy family. She's supposed to marry Cal in order to achieve stable, you know, financial and family status. Uh, She's told to sit up straight, um, to wear pretty dresses, to Eat with all the right forks and spoons and utensils that, that are offered to her. Um, and I think if we're being honest, like, there's something really appealing about the life that Jack is living, right? He is a complete nomad, uh, and he can kind of go wherever and do whatever.
2: And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you?
3: Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, got everything I need right here with me. Got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now here I am on the grandest ship in the world having champagne with you fine people.
1: I'll take some more that. Uh, and maybe there's something to be affirmed and critiqued about this idea of freedom, right? Like, we've talked in the podcast in the past how uh, freedom actually, like, comes within the constraints of God's rules because that life that he has intends for us is actually what is most liberating when we talk about like John 10 10 uh, Jesus coming to give life and give it to the full like that is within context of submitting to God that's actually where our greatest life is found tracing all the way back to Eden in early Genesis um but I want to focus on this verse Colossians 3 3 for you died and your life is now hidden in, with Christ in God I think this means that we sh- should we choose to surrender to Christ, we die to our own expectations and the expectations of others, and our lives make huge paradigm shift. No longer do we have to live at the mercy uh, of what others or even we desire for us. We actually get to see the liberating power of following Jesus, uh, and we see it all throughout the New Testament, and there are two, pa- two other passages that I want to touch on here. Um, we got Philippians 1, 21 through 24, and this is Paul writing to the church of Philippi. He says, quote, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am willing to go on living in this body, this will, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Here we see the language of a guy in Paul who has sacrificed everything for Jesus. If Paul doesn't have Jesus, what does he have? And finally, we've got this passage from the Gospels, uh, John six sixty-seven through 68. This is an, inter- an interaction between Jesus and Peter. So Jesus asked the 12, do you want to leave too? This is after many people had left. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So in, in this instance, Peter and the other disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. They've left their families, uh, their jobs, their lives behind, uh, and they too are at a point where if they left Jesus, they would be totally lost. And I think that's a good challenge for me and for us as believers of, hey, if we like were to completely walk away from Jesus right now, how stable does our life lo- life look? I think that question's a keen uh, insight into our dependence on Christ. And so this scene uh, where Jack talks about uh, having nothing left to lose, like, I just think that's a really great place to be living where it's like, hey, I'm holding on to Jesus. And like anything other than Jesus is probably going to be a disaster for me. I think that's a great picture of dependence upon Christ uh, and being completely sold out. So that's why this quote wins my Mary Magdalene award. Yeah, I love it. I agree. It's a very biblical idea. What are the practicalities of this? I think it frees us to like, feel like we don't have to impress anybody I don't know uh, at least for me when I think about myself as a people pleaser it's like why am I trying to win the affection or like sympathy or friendship of people who like really don't want anything to do with me like why am I trying to find my value in that um and more so than like people that uh, I need to like be my friends like I get to be a friend to somebody else I think it frees it frees me in that sense because no longer am I like clinging to somebody for friendship like I have already found the greatest of friendship and comfort and identity with Christ. Now I get to like, go out and confer that to others. And so I think that would be like one practical instance of it. I think also it very much applies financially. Like, Hey, look, like I'm not taking any of this like money with me. And Jesus tells the story of, you know, the woman who brings two pennies uh, to the temple and like gives everything that she has. There's a lot of freedom and being like, Hey, I, I can't hold on to all this that I'm going to, you know, not be able to take with me one day. So Uh, I I guess those are two instances that kind of come to mind for me. Are there any for you?
0: Well, yeah, I think what you're talking about there kind of reminds me that like the idea behind tithing is like the money isn't even ours, really. Like we're stewarding what's been given to us by God. And if that's the same of our physical bodies, of our jobs, of our families, of anything that's been given to us, if it really is all God created, God given, then like, do we really have anything that's not him? So like when we say you've got nothing, so you've got nothing to lose, like, Maybe that hits the nail on the head in the sense that, like,
1: even the people who think they have something, it's all an illusion. Yeah, I mean, it's all just temporary, right? Like, we are we become stewards. Rather than owners, we become stewards. Another thing
0: that's interesting to me is that it seems like the people who are elite typically play their professions, so to speak, as if they have nothing to lose, right? Like, you have to think that Steph Curry's out there, like, Jacking up threes from downtown thinking he's got nothing to lose. Like just athletically, like whenever we try to really like grip tightly onto something and sort of white knuckle it, like we tend to not be as loose, as free, as flowing, as rhythmic, and or as, you know, ultimately as successful. At least that's certainly true in golf. Like the people who play like they have nothing to lose, like swing for the fences, you actually tend to drive the ball straighter Mm. in the middle of the fairway than trying to sort of like guide it. Uh, is like what you're kind of cautioned against, I guess.
1: I think that's really fascinating. And I think especially when our identity is not in our success, and we talked about that Steph Curry quote maybe last week or two weeks ago where he says, I have nothing left to prove, but I have a lot left to accomplish. Like when your identity is not rooted in your performance, when your identity is rooted in something deeper, specifically with Christ, like it frees us to take a lot of shots, like metaphorically and literally. Um, And I think Steph's a good example of that. All right, Kev, take me to your Mary Magdalene Award. I'm
0: giving my Mary Magdalene award to Jack and Rose reunited at the end. This is a stunning scene, but for me, it begs the question, like, what is this? Like, is this a wedding of Jack and Rose and Rose's old, old Rose's dreams of like what could have been or should have been like, like, what do you think this is? I'm honestly asking you.
1: Yeah, for me, I think it's like this hypothetical scenario in which the two of them actually get to be together. For me, it's a fantasy. It sounds like you didn't like it. No, I thought it was a good scene, uh, but it was just, a, it was a fantasy more so than it was a reality. Got
0: it. Well, I guess the question beneath that for me is like, why is this a fantasy? Like, why does this moment feel like so desired by all of us that like we just have to like patch it on to the end of the movie, even though it doesn't really make a lot of sense? To me, it's like this ending of a story is like written in our hearts so deeply that we just like can't even evade it. Like, like the reunited lovers, like somehow, some way they get back together. Like this is the way it should have ended, you know? Like, we get the sense that Titanic is what really happened, but this ending is what should have happened in a better world. But that begs the question, like, why do we feel this gravitational pull towards, like, a better world? Like, does that not imply, like, some sense of right and wrong that's outside of us or some kind of eternal longings in our heart? I guess I just feel like when we watch this, like, we all want this ending and we all, like, sense that it should be true. And I think that's because this is the ending of the Bible, end of our lives. This is Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And it actually gets quoted in Titanic. I don't know if you remember this, when they're sort of like climbing to the bow of the ship. Yeah, yeah. So maybe it'll sound familiar. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new that's stunning language that's one of my favorite passages in the entire bible but this is one of my favorite scenes in all of movies, because I think when I think about like, what is heaven going to be like, this is like top five, what comes to mind, like ascending a staircase in front of all friends and family, everyone, you know, and it's like, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? Like you made it like they're all smiling. They're all dressed up. It's like you endured the test. Like you ran the race as Paul says. Um, and not that it's like a performance thing, like you made it, but it's that like, we are ascending the staircase as Rose to our true and greater bridegroom, Jesus, who's at the top, who holds out his hand and is ready for us. This is how the story ends. Like we can't help ourselves from telling it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I do think there's a lot to be affirmed about that scene. I think, the idea of being reunited with Jesus face to face is what's referenced there. I think in, in revelation and, um, and even like the camera after we see Jack and Rose kiss, like it pans
0: up to that circular skylight and like circles are a very heavenly Mm. symbolic thing. And it's like white, like we fade to white instead of fading to black, which is sort of like more heavenly, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I think there are a lot of filmmaking cues here that are saying like, this is like, uh, an eschatological moment. Like this is a, this is an apocalyptic, like heavenly depiction. If you're wondering, like, why should I want to go to heaven? Like, cue that YouTube video up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think I don't don't have any disagreements there. I think you're head on.
0: Give me your false prophet award for a non-biblical argument Titanic makes.
1: So this is going to be a little bit nuanced, um, but my false prophet award goes to the idea that we have to save everybody that we can. (laughs) and so i think there's something to be very much affirmed right we want to like when when the ship is going down we want to save as many people as possible right we want to get the women and children on the ships and like ideally if the men can fit on the ships like that is great as well um but it feels like in this moment of this hour, I guess, of total chaos. Uh, Jack and Rose are running around the ships trying to uh, save everybody I can't, everybody they can. And specifically, there's the instance of the little boy where they go back for the, for the little boy, and then his father comes and, and yells at them. And uh, basically, they're just trying to save everybody that they can. And, and I think there is something very biblical about this, right? Of like pursuing uh, lost people and trying to like bring them to the feet of Jesus um, in order that they may be saved too. Uh, but I think one of the things that has struck me over the past couple of years in reading the Bible uh, is this really nuanced uh, characteristic of Jesus that he doesn't actually save everybody that he encounters. Um, and maybe we can unpack a little bit what that says about Jesus and what that says about us. So I've got two passages here, Mark 6, 1 through 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed." Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And so here's another uh, passage that I think further explains this um, this characteristic of Jesus. We've got Mark 1:35 through 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon, is, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. I maybe should have set this up better at the beginning, but the crowds are pressed at Jesus' door. Uh, The people have been lining up, and he has been performing miracles left and right. And so there are a bunch of sick and hurting people uh, at Jesus' door. And yet, in the morning before anybody else has woken up, he he chooses to leave and uh, go and spend time in a solitary place, uh, being with his father, praying. And so this is kind of a, a hard passage in the Bible to read because there's so many people that are waiting at Jesus's door, ready to be healed. And yet he doesn't do that. And, and what does that say about Jesus and his character? Uh, and I think one, it says like more so than he values healing people, he values time spent with his father, like communion with God the father is more important than like the works that he is doing here on the earth. Like independent of being with the father, like Jesus is not able to go and uh, and do these crazy works. But I think it also shows that, like, Jesus' greatest good on this earth was never to heal everybody. It was never to cure everybody of their disease and sickness and healing. And in some ways, because we exist in a broken world that is full of sin, like, we are never in on this earth going to experience full healing in the way that we will once experience it in our relationship with Jesus uh, in heaven one day. And so I think it's not showing that Jesus is, like, endorsing pain he is but healing is not something that we are owed it is god's grace that is bestowed on us through the person of jesus and so uh when i say that my false prophet award is that like we have to save everybody we we can like i think that titanic argues that we just need to get as many people off the boat and it's like our personal responsibility to get everybody off the boat Um, but when we look at the verse that like nobody comes to the father uh, except those whom the father draws near like we are not responsible for other people's salvation. And yet we get to like partake in that salvation through ministry, through incarnational ministry of like Christ living in us. And I think that actually frees us to say, Hey, no longer do I have to like struggle and run a hundred miles per hour for the rest of my life, trying to pull as many people into heaven as I can. Like uh, Jesus did ministry at three miles per hour, walking place to place and was willing to step out and step away from bro- broken and hurting people because communion with his father is more important than trying to fix everything so i think there's something to be affirmed and critiqued there but that's why that wins my false prophet award yeah i like it so jesus wasn't a utilitarian and jack and rose shouldn't be either yeah i think that's a pretty basic way to sum it up
0: well done what do we make of that line that old rose has at the end where she's sort of like and jack saved me
3: but now you know there was a man named jack dawson and that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved
1: I think that quote's actually really interesting because, uh, again, it takes me back to the story of Jesus and the paralytic. He's like, what's easier for me to like forgive his sins or for him to get up and walk? And Jesus does both. He restores his righteous relationship with God through forgiving sins, and he also restores his ability to walk, which is like his earthly pain. And so I think in the instance of Rose, uh, Jack restoring her identity and like liberating her and freeing her would kind of be the parallel for Jesus forgiving the paralyzed man uh, of his sins, and Jack physically saving her life is kind of the parallel for Jesus telling the paralytic man to get up and walk. And oftentimes we look at the get up and walk as being like, wow, that is so incredible. And we look at Jack laying down his life to save Rose as being, wow, that is so incredible. But in reality, like there's a deeper restoration that is going on beneath the surface of Jack saving Rose in more way, in every way that somebody can be saved. I think that's much more of a parallel to Jesus saying, "Hey, like your sins are forgiven." And even though like those are words versus getting to see physical change, like those words and those truth are actually a lot more powerful than we give them credit for. I feel like every
0: time I watch that, I'm like screaming. Not every way in my mind, because it's like. Well, Jack didn't save her completely and fully. But I guess if you want to run with Jack as your Jesus Award foreshadowing, then maybe he is like an even better Jesus Award for that point. It's all about how you frame it, right? For sure. All right, Kev, take me to your False Prophet Award. I'm giving my False Prophet Award to Survival at All Costs. And maybe this sounds familiar from The Martian, but I just think we see Jack and Rose willing to kind of do things that I, I feel like biblically we wouldn't endorse uh, in the name of survival. Do you know I walk want- the valley of the shadow of death. I you will wanna walk well. a little
3: faster through that valley there? Open the gate. Go back down the main stairwell. Open the gate right now! Go back down the main stairwell like I told you!
2: God damn it, son of a
0: bitch! Stop! That. I don't know i think about philippians 1 uh, verses 21 to 24 and how paul is like literally wrestling with like should i die or should i live like i want to be united with christ fully like glorification to live in the kingdom of god in heaven one day but i also know that like uh, god can use me here and i can steward my gifts and my time so listen to these verses for to me to live is christ and to die is gain if i'm to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me yet what shall i choose i cannot tell i'm hard pressed between the two My desire is to part and be with Christ for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account and not that Paul is saying like God needs me for these people but like God can use me I guess would be like the more biblical contextualized version of what he's saying there and so I guess in some ways it's like if to live is Christ and to die is gain because you're kind of you gain Christ in a way like we don't get to see Jesus now as we will one day and so I don't know. I guess I just don't know how incentivized I would be to, like, do literally anything to survive. Maybe that's a familiar argument. Maybe it feels like a bad argument. But uh, I especially don't think we want to be doing biblically
1: sinful things in the name of survival. There's something, like, so natural and inherent about a survival instinct. Like, I tried to think of myself in context of the people on the Titanic and it was hard for me not to imagine fighting my way to get on one of those boats. But I, I would agree that if we are like truly to believe that to die is gain, like again, like I believe that kind of on a head level, but, nowhere near like <laughs> remember like
0: a false prophet award is something that the movie makers are arguing is good that's not biblical it's not that like a character does something unbiblical it's that like survival is framed as this high good that's higher than being principled and doing things in a biblical way and i know that there's like a survival instinct that kicks in but if we really are to live in christ in the new creation we've said goodbye to the former self like we're called to be different to be conformed to god's son's image like he's gonna develop into something better than the primal instinctive do i will push someone down to get me up way that we used to know yeah 100 percent. so i don't know it's a hard conversation it's tricky like is this sin is this not sin is this going too far like how badly should we survive but at the very least i think good movies open up the boxes for those kinds of questions so another reason to like titanic anyways give me your jesus award for the most christ-like figure in titanic so my jesus award
1: pretty clearly for me goes to jack and this is also my pulpit pick I think Jack is near the top of my list of this entire podcast for Jesus Awards. And even though I would say that Titanic is not one of my top five favorite movies that we've done for this podcast, man, it is hard to argue against Jack. Jack presents a lot of incredibly admirable uh, characteristics here. He is a sacrificial servant. He is willing to die for Rose in the opening scene. He is willing to die for He is willing to die for Rose in the final scene. Um, Jack is willing to lay down his own interests in order to serve the interests of the person that he loves, uh, his beloved, which is Rose. He is silent in accusation. Um, We see after the first scene uh, when he lands on top of Rose, and I guess Cal and his whole crew think that uh, Jack has been doing something... Uh, despicable with Rose, uh, he instead of like arguing his case, he is silent uh, when accused, which reminds me of Mark fourteen fifty five through 61. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many falsely testified against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Jack does the exact same thing before Cal and his crew of goons uh, Jack is incredibly honest. We've got the dining room scene where he doesn't pretend to be somebody that he isn't. Yes. He, uh, is polite and he is engaging with the people around him, but he doesn't pretend or lie that he is, uh, is from a family that he's not. I think one of my favorite scenes, uh, is when they, uh, ask him like, Oh, are you with the Dawson family? Like from Boston? And he's like, Nope, I'm from Boston family with, the." Uh, is it Chippewa Falls? Chippewa
0: Falls Dawson's.
1: Yeah, he says, I'm with the Chippewa Falls Dawson's, not with the Boston Dawson's. So he's not trying to pretend to be somebody that he isn't. Um, Jack is also the pursuer that becomes pursued. One of the things that we talked about earlier in this podcast is that Jesus is always the one who makes the first move here. Uh, John 1.14, uh, Jesus puts on flesh and... Uh, and dwells among us like Jesus is the one who makes the first move entering into our world same uh, for Jack he's the one who enters into Rose's world uh, on that first scene when she's standing on the side of the ship and also John 6:44, which is nobody comes to the Father uh, unless the fra- Father draws them near like again Jesus is always the one who's making the first move uh, and same similarly with Jack he is the, always the one that is making the first move um, but really, I think my favorite element of Jack is, is from this little scene that we get when he starts showing off his drawings to Rose, and she has this line for him. She says, quote, you have a gift, Jack. You do. You see people.
3: She used to sit at this bar every night, wearing every piece of jewelry she owned, just waiting for her long-lost love. Called her Madame Bijou. See her clothes are all moth-eaten? Well, you have a gift, Jack you do you see people i see you and you wouldn't have jumped
1: i love that jack sees people we've got jesus seeing the woman at the well in john 4 1 through 26 uh, where yes he like physically puts himself in the space where the where the woman is but he also sees her entire backstory he sees that she's had five husbands Uh, that she doesn't identify with the same ethnic group as he does he sees the bleeding woman uh, and identifies her in mark 5 like this woman who is uh one of many in a crowd pressed around jesus she reaches out and touches his cloak and yet he says who touched me uh and identifies this woman and sees her and asks her to share her story with him Uh, he sees zacchaeus uh, in the tree in luke 19 1-10 like Again, a, a large crowd and a little man climbed atop a sycamore tree, and he looks out and identifies Zacchaeus, and he sees him, and he calls him into deeper, richer life, and more importantly than that, into relationship with himself. Uh, and finally, another little instance: John one through fifty, uh, Jesus sees Nathaniel. Jesus sees Nathaniel before calling underneath a fig tree, before calling him to be a disciple, uh, and Jesus telling Nathaniel that information before Nathaniel actually comes to him is what. Uh, spurs nathaniel on to choose to follow him Uh, and so jesus can tell us things about ourselves uh, that maybe we don't even know about ourselves he he has an ability to see beyond the surface into our deepest darkest uh secrets and and into our hearts and he loves us in the middle of that so um, man i could go on and on about jack as a jesus figure but these are just a couple of the instances uh, and verses that i think kind of ground that choice for me
0: I love it, I'm in total agreement. I'm thankful that you did a lot of the heavy lifting per usual when I had the same Jesus award because you're just on the money. And I think the fact that Jack sees people is what makes him the most Christ-like to me, even despite the fact that he's initiating, like you said, that it's love at first sight, which is one thing I wanted to mention. Uh, so yes, I'm giving it to Jack. And Genesis 131, I think, shows this in the biblical account. Uh, So God, like when he makes everything, he says like, and he saw that it was good. But then when he makes humankind, he says that it's very good. Check this out. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. You could kind of call that love at first sight for God and man, right? And so I think we kind of see Jack in that moment where he's looking up on the kind of veranda and sees Rose and the piano starts kind of tickling in the higher registers. And Tommy's like, oh, it's like, what does he say? Like, uh, like one in a million getting the likes of being beside her or something. Oh, forget it, Boyle.
3: You just like how angels fly out of your arse as getting next to the likes of her.
0: He's involved now. Like you jump, I jump. He's all in, and Jesus is all in on us. Inviting Rose into a new world, like the magical flying that we talked about from earlier. Uh, For this, I've got Acts 9, 4 through 5. And falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're going to do. And so this is like Paul's conversion story. It's like, hey, Saul, this isn't who you are. You're gonna become Paul. You're gonna become this great person. You're gonna experience rich life in me. And Paul's gonna go on to write a lot of the New Testament. Fun fact, not as much as Luke, but he's gonna write a lot. And uh I think Jack invites Rose into this version of her that was always there, but like hadn't been kind of set free from the cage, so to speak. I guess biblically speaking, she goes from death to life, right? Like total depravity, but in a way like rose's adventurous side was always there but like jack is able to sort of be the catalyst by which he enters new life and is flying and is speechless and it's exhilarating and then lastly you jump i jump like coming in faithfulness like we talked about philippians 1 6 here and i'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of jesus christ and then romans 8 to bring it home this is the fireworks passage it's just been too long since we've read it on the podcast verses 28 through 39, think about Jack and Rose in these words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Pause time out. So if Jack is like the God figure here, it's like, Hey, I predestined you, and therefore I called you, and therefore I justified you, therefore I'm sanctifying you, therefore I'm glorifying you. Like, you jump, I jump, this train will get to the finish line. But why? Everlasting love. Let's look at this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things... All these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's as exclamatory as it gets in God's love for us. And Jack's love for Rose is the same. And Rose mirrors it at the end, right? Like, I'll never let go, Jack. Like, the covenant is going to remain and endure. And. We even get some of that kind of uh, end times language there, like at the right hand, it's He who justifies. Like that kind of reminds me back to the Mary Magdalene award of how we finish the story. But, but yeah, I mean, you nailed it. Like it's Jack by a mile. There's an argument to be made that it's Molly. She has some Christ-like moments, but Jack is initiating here. He's the catalyst by which Rose enters the better, fuller version of herself. And
1: if she jumps, he jumps. Yeah, I I'm 100 percent in agreement. I don't know how you could argue against Jack in this movie.
0: So that's it for the awards and now onto the Q&A. You can email us at jesusinmovies at gmail.com. So this week we have a very special guest. We have Helen Duffy. Helen, how's it going?
2: Hi, it's good. How are y'all?
0: We're doing great. What are you up to these days? Who are you?
2: (laughs) I'm a 23-year-old woman living in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm currently doing art and then also a waitress on the side.
0: Awesome. And uh, could you share with us one way you've seen a biblical parallel or the gospel or truth in something you've read or watched or listened to lately?
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero, I believe is how you say her last name. I got one of her quotations that said, love is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Love beats the crap out of fear, hate, jealousy, worry, insecurity, irritation, grouchiness. Is stronger than all of them if we all just spend our days focusing on strengthening our love muscles lord this changes we'd see and that really stuck with me like i didn't even have to go through and pick this out like i had this picked out and left it in my art studio because we can really come together through love and that reminded me of one peter's four eight above all love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins yeah that's my little spiel i guess
1: thanks for sharing that's awesome
0: this was our titanic episode i know you've seen that do you have any do you like that movie do you not like it Graham and i are actually in a little bit of a disagreement
2: i mean i thought it was okay i was just kind of at the end i was just mad because jack could have lived so it just really just made me upset so i didn't really like it because i was mostly
1: so kellen's on my side then kev it's overrated I guess so. <laughs> Different reasoning, though.
2: Yeah, I agree. My ADD <laughs> cannot handle it.
1: <laughs> all right, well, thanks so
0: much, Helen.
2: You're welcome.
0: Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there. Before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Kelly Barclay, Courtney, Kristen Craig, Heather and Jackson Carlock, Tanner Carlson, Gabe Darty, Jacob DiRizio, Ben Dunbar, Graham Janet, Ken Hooten, Maggie King, Daniel Lee, Bess McLawhorn, Mike, Chom Babone, Scott Bahacek, Logan Russell, Andy Simmons, Will Smith, Kim Streamer, Helen Webster, Clay Young. Thank you all so much for your support. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram, at Jesus and Movies, but if you go there, you'll see that this is
1: our last episode of season one, Graham. Oh, sad, but hopefully you've enjoyed the ride for season one as much as we have. We will be back Sometime in the fall, we haven't set a specific date yet, but before we finish out season one, we are throwing the jimmies, which will be also posted as episode 32. Kev, you want to give the listeners a little update on what the jimmies is and what we're going to be doing for it?
0: Yeah, so we're six days away, April 17th, 2021 in South Charlotte, and we're finalizing that RSVP list. So if it's of interest, we'd love to have you. It's going to be a great time. There'll be pictures, there'll be music, there'll be awards presentations and speeches and microphones and clips and there's no prerequisite knowledge required of the podcast of the other episodes we've done so it's gonna be a great time Looked forward to seeing you there if you'd like to support the jesus the movies podcast patreon is our preference for one dollar a month you can become a patron and pick the movies get shouted out on the podcast and featured on the instagram so if you'd like to join the group please do so at patreon.com slash jesus and movies or on the free patreon app Anyone can always write us at jesusmovies at gmail.com, and if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies Podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty, and I'll even say especially beauty for this episode. Know that this world is indeed a sinking ship in which no amount of money or status could ever save you, but that Jesus offers the romance of all romances, and that in him alone our hearts will go on. And we'll see you next week.